0: Now this is this is an almost almost fantastical tale back to the Korean War it's at its height and a, a young Yale graduate has joined the CIA and he's serving his country he, his his service to the CIA reaches its denouement in a a mission to Manchuria in northern China it doesn't work out his aircraft is shot down he's captured by the Chinese he receives a life sentence and will stay in prison for two decades. Well, the U.S. government re- refuses to admit his 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 links to espionage. It's the it's the story of a, a covert American war uh, in China, and it's set against the backdrop of a critical time in American foreign policy thinking. We're in the the beginnings of the Cold War. The CIA's secret war in China. It's not very well known, but now there is a a new book about it, and it's called Agents of Subversion, The Fate of John T. Downey and the CIA's Covert War in China. The span of the book is from the, the 1940s through the early 1970s, and its author is John DeLury, Professor of Chinese Studies at Yonsei University in Seoul, South Korea. He joins us now. John, welcome. Well, thanks so much for having me. We, we, we share a thing in common here. We, we have both read the, the New York Times obituary of John Thomas Downey that appeared in 2014. And, and it's an extraordinary little piece. And for you, it sparked this book.
1: It did. I mean, it, it's nice to know exactly what the origin story of a book like this, you know, which took me many years yes. to, to research and write. But I can pinpoint uh, when it started with that obituary. I'm glad you read it. And actually, a friend of mine, uh, a, a wonderful expert on China and the United States and contemporary realm, Evan Osnos, also read it like us and thought, oh, shoot, it's too bad. Downey's dead you know otherwise i could do a new yorker profile i thought oh great (laughs) i can write a history book about this now that he's dead (laughs)
0: there's there's two worlds of writing in what you say there so when you see this obit uh, did you know anything of of Downey's story i didn't and that is a big part of what drew me in
1: you know because uh, you mentioned he was a yale graduate he was the yale class of 1951 and I spent a fair bit of time, I did both my undergraduate years at Yale College and then returned for a good, took me a good eight years to do the PhD there. So, and, and in fact, when I was there at Yale, um, the afterword of the story is Downey ends up in New Haven, Connecticut, you know, essentially in, in town. And so that it just compounded for me, this sense of why isn't this story better known? How could I not know it? And if I don't know it, a lot of people don't know it, even though this obituary's here. And, uh, you know, could could this be the canvas for something bigger for a whole book-length treatment?
0: And so that kind of set me off on my journey. Tell me about that, that Yale class of, of 1951, because it turns out to be quite a, a, a fecund group of uh, young gentlemen for the for the CIA
1: yeah it, it really is um, you know there are these great quotes about how uh, half the class or a hundred of these men of course Yale was all men uh, until the 1970s um, so it's all it's all men and a large batch of them did go into CIA which is just getting its start um, I mean for me actually a big part of the fun of the research was to uh, indulge myself in looking at the history of my own alma mater and, you know, figure yeah. out, okay, what's Yale like back then? Uh, it's kind of the first class of the Cold War, right? Because they enter in 1947. I actually found that the, the day uh, in September where they sort of matriculate is the same day that the CIA Opened its doors. Uh, it was created in, 19, in the fall of 1947, and so you have sort of this Yale class. I mean, a lot of it is what you'd expect. You know, it's kind of WASPy, New England, um, you know, America, and, and private schools and all that. But you're starting to see some of the early post-war uh, diversification. I mean, on the edges, I would say, of the class. Uh, but they're the, they're the creme de la creme, and then. Uh, the Korean War starts while they're in the middle of school. Mm. And as they're preparing to graduate, they're facing this bleak future of having to go fight. You know, they missed World War II, but now they're uh, they're being told they're going to be shipped off to, to Korea. And for various reasons, many of them selected intelligence as the as sort of the best way to fight the war. And so the CIA, uh, you know, had a great time recruiting from this class in particular, the class of 1951.
0: The book, though, it goes back beyond that, and it goes back to, to to Pearl Harbor and and a relationship, an alliance between uh, Franklin Roosevelt, the president, and and the nationalist Chinese leader Chiang Kai shek What's the story of that arrangement, that alliance?
1: Yeah, well, you're right. That's a very important, um, you know, kind of preface to it all. Is to understand actually how close the United States and China. Uh, had become. I mean, there's an even longer story, you know, going back maybe into the 19th century of American missionaries and also uh, commercial interests, you know, traders who are who are starting to lay the groundwork of that uh, in its own way, special relationship the United States had with China. But in a way, it reaches a crescendo during uh, World War Two. I mean, immediately after Pearl Harbor, Chiang Kai-shek seizes the opportunity within days uh, and and FDR is happy to reciprocate. They sign an alliance treaty, you know, so that China will fight Japan uh, in the east, as it were, and the United States will be fighting, you know, out from the other side of the Pacific. But, of course, the United States is primarily looking um, to the European theater, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and Roosevelt's primary ally is, is Churchill. So there's a strange sort of dynamic on the surface The United States is all about this China alliance. There's a lot of propaganda during the war to make Americans feel very close to China. Uh, In in reality, there are these intense negotiations and, and a lot of disagreement and resentment because there's a kind of strategy to the war where the Americans and the Brits hope that the Chinese can take as much punishment as possible and kind of bog down Japanese forces while they win the war in Europe. So it's a very complicated uh, wartime alliance, but it's an important one. And when everything suddenly ends off in 1945, the American public has been pumped full of this idea of, of China, almost as a, not a protectorate, you know, but as, as a place that has this um, special presence in American life and, uh, and um, you know, there's a real celebration of it. And that's what makes the mm. sudden swift victory of Chinese communists you know, so devastating uh, in, in by 1949 to Americans.
0: Well, Amer- Americans phrase this as, as losing China. Exactly. There's this, there's a proprietorial sense about this relationship.
1: It's an incredible phrase, isn't it? I mean, it kind of gives away the whole game. <laughs> yes. And it was used to, uh, in a totally uncritical way. You know, it, the question was, who lost China? Uh, and it, not only is it extraordinary to think that China was America's to lose, but it also becomes the fulcrum of this very toxic uh, internal political, uh, more than debate, you know, real political campaigns, which come to be known as McCarthyism, because the answer to the question who lost China uh, morphs into the question of, you know, who are loyal Americans and who are disloyal uh, agents of subversion, as it were. You know who's working for the Reds, who's working for the Soviets and the Chinese here amongst us in the United States. So the "Who Lost China?" debate uh, quickly becomes part of the of the whole Red Scare uh, led by Senator Joe
0: McCarthy in the nineteen fifties. And, and it, I mean, immensely complicated by the, the, the there are now two groups of red people. This is <laughs> mm. the, the Cold War with, with Mao's victory becomes a, a suddenly increasingly complex state.
1: No, that's right. And uh, and then you've also got Taiwan, you know, because the Chinese Civil War, of course, doesn't end cleanly. It ends mm. with this strange uh, government in exile um, led by the one and only Chiang Kai-shek, uh, who should add, after that initial excitement in the days of Pearl Harbor, uh, Americans, even including FDR, had become increasingly despondent about their ally, you know, and uh, saw him as maybe not the greatest partner to have. Uh, But Chiang Kai-shek loses the civil war just enough, not entirely. And he ends up on the island of Taiwan and uh, he'll stay there evermore, uh, you know, trying to kind of rally American support in his quest To somehow retake the mainland. Uh, And so that becomes then a a permanent feature of Cold War dynamics of this support, or the first half of the Cold War, I should say, American robust support for Taiwan against, you know, kind of red China. Uh, And uh, that, of course, then goes through various twists and turns to get us to where we are. Almost (laughs) feels like we're back to that
0: now. Well, listeners can make their own judgment on, on on current events as to whether that 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 civil war is is in any way resolved. But that's that's right. Again, another of those conversations for another time. I mean, but but back in that moment, in that that Cold War moment, you you talk in your book on on this this division in in American foreign policy thinking around China between two camps: the the realists and and the China hands, which is a delightfully sort of Graham Greeny kind of way of viewing things and more of him and none. Uh, <laughs> c- could you describe those two schools of, of, of thinking?
1: Sure. Well, it, you know, in a way, the realists and the China hands are, are not so much opposed to one another. They're making parallel arguments just at different levels, I would say, of foreign policy. So the realists um, – which is a name, of course, common in international relations, you know, discourse. But I have a very particular group of four realists that I sort of hone in on at that period of time in the book. And, you know, many of your listeners would know uh, some or all of them, George Kennan, uh, the the great sort of American diplomat and strategist of the Cold War, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, a theologian, but one who had a lot of ideas about American power and what should be done in world affairs, Hans Morgenthau, uh, who, who you'd actually think of as a realist, a great international relations uh, uh, realist thinker, and then Hannah Arendt, the philosopher. So the, these four realists are making, writing extraordinary works, you know, like Arendt's uh, Origins of Totalitarianism comes out in this period, uh, a neighbor's book. Um, on the irony of American history is absolutely timeless, really a classic so they 're making these arguments coming out of uh, the victory of World War II but entering into the Cold War, and they 're basically saying to their American readers, hmm. you know don 't get too infatuated with your superpowerdom, and beware of what this kind of global power that, that you now have, what it could do to actually corrupt uh, American democracy. I mean, that's ultimately, I think the realist argument. So they end up advocating a much more restrained approach to the cold war and they're skeptical of the calls, you know, even though they they see very clearly the threat of, of Stalin. And I mean, Hannah Arendt is no fan of totalitarianism, but they are extremely worried about kind of the fragility of democratic life in the United States. So that's the realists. And uh, the China hands, which is a very Graham Greene phrase, you're right. (laughs) Um, I mean, they are a little bit more, they're almost like realists, but they're the ones who know China. You know, they've spent time in China. Many of them are uh, the sons and mostly male sons of missionaries. You know, maybe they grew up there and they're bilingual. Uh, And so they are some of uh, the most astute observers of what's happening internally in China. And they're quite active in the late 40s and just into the early 50s as they're trying to, uh, you know, educate the American public on the complexities of the situation. Many of the China hands end up arguing, you know, we shouldn't write off Mao Zedong and the communists, Uh, Chiang Kai-shek is is not great. He's basically a fascist and a corrupt one and not a very effective one. We should see if we can come to to some kind of agreement with the Chinese communists, you know, with Mao Zedong. So Hmm. uh, it's a very interesting moment of debate. But then that debate particularly the China hands, uh, that gets shut down again very brutally once Joe McCarthy comes on the scene because to make those arguments is now essentially treasonous, you know, in the in the much colder atmosphere of the 1950s. And so they they have to quiet themselves. Many lose their jobs in government. Uh, they lose their platforms in, in publishing and whatnot. And so you really see the effects of how almost a generation of experts is sort of silenced by the political atmosphere in the United States.
0: On LNL, you're listening to John Delury, and his his new book is Agents of Subversion, The Fate of John T. Downey and the CIA's Covert War in China. And John, this, this sort of takes us to that, that notion of, of, of the covert war. Uh, and I mean, w- one of the paths chosen by, by the CIA and by American influence is to talk to a um, sort of a third force agents of subversion within China p- p- people who are neither supporters of Mao or Chiang kai shek Yeah
1: and this was another one I, I'll be very honest I had a steep learning curve eight years ago when I began this this project you know I mentioned before I didn't hadn't really heard of John T. Downey. I didn't know much about the third force and it was a lot of fun uh, to have this whole new world of what is this? this thing, you know? And uh, where did it come from? Uh, Because on the surface, it sounds like one of those classic American foreign policy delusions, right? Oh, there are these liberal, moderate, more intellectual types, and they're kind of like us, you know? American types of liberals who are wandering around China. And that's really the third force uh, ideal, is that if they could just get power, how great would it be? You know, we, mm. we certainly don't want the communists, but we don't like the nationalists very much either. And so... Too simple, um, perhaps. <laughs> too simple. But I have to say, the more I researched it, um, I found, you know, there was more going on to that third force. And while in the end, of course, it didn't succeed, it wasn't quite as fantastical to explore, well, could, um, you know, could we, the United States back then, work to strengthen their political uh, position because at different periods, you know, they had a certain amount of leverage and you could see alternately Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists and then Mao Zedong and the communists trying to kind of woo this middle group, you know, and pull them Mm. over to their side. The thing about it is though, that the CIA gets a hold of this idea. And and in the defense of the CIA, they're basically told to work on this. It's not exactly uh, uh, their cup of tea, but they're really told you need to start a project to support this third force. And so the, the shift that I describe in the book is this idea of a kind of liberal group who would have a liberal pluralistic vision of a future China. It gets operationalized and weaponized as part of this covert war against China. And so you you get recruiting of third force agents in Hong Kong who are then flown out to the island of Saipan where they go through paramilitary training and then a little bit more brush up training in Japan and then actually deployed into Chinese territory. So that's where the third force ideal starts to become something Uh, quite different and, again, kind of weaponized in a clandestine operation.
0: The Third Force Officer gives us just a momentary reference, our our bumping into Graham Greene here. It's an idea which tickles him as well.
1: Indeed, and, you know, for fun and literary inspiration, I was reading a lot of Le Carré and a lot of the great spy novels, (laughs) you know, and, of course, that included uh, Graham Greene. And then, lo and behold... I had I had read it before, but rereading it, I suddenly saw, oh my goodness, there's the third force in Vietnam. Because actually uh this notion of third force was not restricted to China. It was sort of a, a glo- there was a global circulation to this idea in the late nineteen forties and, and onward. And one of the places there was a lot of talk about, oh, could we just find a third force? Uh, were the French and then the Americans who who looked very hard uh, mm. to find it, and so the Quiet American is actually inspired by this by Graham Greene on idea. a trip, <laughs> yeah, actually hearing about it. So that 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 justified me writing a bit about Graham Greene in my book, which
0: was great fun. Well, let's let's go to the, the Quiet American in, in question and 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 Jack Downey because yeah. He is, of course, in his CIA role, he, he's running a group of third force operatives. And this this leads to his disastrous mission over Manchuria.
1: He is. And I mean, I almost hesitate at the word running. I think that's right. But one, one sort of important part of the story and, and also of my book and how I ended up telling the story is that John Downey, you know, is a heroic figure and he's right there in the subtitle but we should warn the reader, you won't see much of him, you know, for hundreds of pages. Uh, And even when he reappears, he is not the decision maker. You know, he is, he's kind of another cog in this whole machine. Um, And so he's doing the training, but he's fresh out of college. You know, he doesn't know how to run a paramilitary operation in, in Manchuria, in Northeast China, much better than, than the next guy. So, you know, Downey sort of finds himself along with these other young recruits um, trying to kind of train and then deploy these young, actually, I guess they'd be a little older than them, uh, but in their 20s and 30s-year-old Chinese agents on these incredible missions where they are flying unmarked planes uh, into, you know, from Korea. They usually leave from from Seoul, from Korea, and they're flying uh, into Chinese territory and dropping out these teams of, you know, four guys, uh, who parachute off to their fate and then are trying to stay in communication via wireless radio out of the CIA headquarter base in Mm -hmm. Japan. Um, and so Downey is in the middle of this. He's running these teams, um, for sure. But again, he's not really coming up with the idea, uh, on one of these missions, actually two, but the the key one on one of the missions, um, it, he he actually flies in himself, and I don't know, do are we going to spoil the plot here, Jonathan? But uh, he, 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 uh, something goes very wrong with that mission, That'll and uh, and his plane is shot down, and 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 he spends quite a while in China.
0: Yeah, I mean the impetus for this is of course the Korean War and 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 China's right. support of of. of... North Korea as it it now is. Um, And I guess there's the hope that the third force might undermine uh, China's role in Korea.
1: That's right. And there's at that time, there were two arguments for the third force. Uh, One was a much grander argument, like I mentioned, that, oh, these guys could, you know, ultimately challenge um, the communists, but they're better positioned to do it than Chiang Kai-shek in the nationalists out in Taiwan. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the grand vision you know, of a, of a China where the communist uh, rule is sort of toppled by the third force. But then there's this more military logic and a tactical one of, uh, which you certainly see in the wartime mobilization on the American side, anything we can do you know, to disrupt things internally for China, that's gonna hurt their war effort in Korea. And so if we can get away with kind of sneaking these guerrilla fighters, uh, whatever they call themselves, fine, they call themselves third force, if we can get them in there and they can cause trouble, then that's gonna distract the Chinese, that's gonna detract uh, from their campaign in Korea, and maybe that will somehow help, because of course, you know, the, there's battlefield stasis. The war is not going well at all from the American position. Mm. And there's a certain mm. degree of desperation as the American commanders are trying to find some kind of battlefield victory in, in Korea.
0: Again, another of those unresolved <laughs> narratives with this, this this, story is littered. But is, is it... Is it Downey's misfortune uh, to to be incarcerated as as he is at, at you know, simultaneously with with McCarthyism and with, with the the McCarthyist take uh, on on this entire operation in which Downey is involved? Does this does this stymie I guess or or, or frustrate any attempts that might have been made to 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 get him out to admit his role and begin some sort of negotiation?
1: It certainly does. Although rather than blame Senator Joe McCarthy, I might blame the Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles. You know, if you wanted to pick Mm -hmm. on one person who, of course, represents much more than just that personality, he, he really represented the tip of the spear of that sort of 1950s um, Cold War mentality, you know, no negotiating with the communists. Uh, they are deceitful, untrustworthy. And um, and we, especially vis-a-vis uh, communist China, the Dulles strategy, actually Eisenhower, the president had more flexibility, uh, but John Foster Dulles himself had a very rigid Approach to this ideological and uncompromising, where the, the whole goal of American foreign policy under Dulles, which is covers the 1950s, basically is to have as little if not nothing to do with the Chinese, and so that is um, you know a, a major determining factor on the misfortune, as you put it, of John Downey, because obviously if you're going to get your spy who's caught red-handed out of this enemy country, you're going to have to somehow talk to them. Um, you're probably going to have to somehow admit it. And Dulles has absolutely no interest in doing any of those things. So are th- there are these various efforts um, to find ways to get Downey out. Uh, but at least during the 1950s, um, the, the Secretary of State Dulles is able to pretty much kibosh any kind of
0: initiative. And in, in the end, of course, Downey has to wait for Nixon. Uh, and the, the the cooling or the warming, if you like, of, of the cooling of hostilities or the warming of relations between the two countries.
1: That's right, because, you know, after Dulles passes from the scene and you have the change of government, you have the Kennedy and and Johnson, LBJ administrations, that doesn't make much difference. You know, the Democrats are... Uh, are just as hardline and um, see very little prospect in trying to create some breakthrough uh, with China. They're not really paying much attention. You know, you, I really saw through the research, actually I found it quite interesting to do the diplomatic history part on the 1960s because what you see then is a policy, that is to say, uh, China policy in the United States, just sort of on an autopilot. You know, hmm. it's, it's not toxic anymore like it used to be in the McCarthy days, uh, but there's no progress and uh, there's not a lot of attention being paid. And so that's when Downey really becomes sort of a uh, he gets really lost in the mists of the depth of alienation in U.S.-China relations, which in, in its way is probably deepest, I would say, in the 1960s until you finally get that quite extraordinary reversal under uh, Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon,
0: and yet here we are, twenty twenty two, and and relationships between America and China are much in our thinking. I mean, what 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 do we take from this extraordinary saga? Is, are, are there lessons for our moment?
1: Well, I didn't mean to do this when I set out on the writing of this book, but. As I was, um, you know, doing the work, I saw, of course, the US-China relationship deteriorate kind of year after year. And I do think that one of the reasons, you know, to, to read through this previous period is because tragically it's relevant now in a way that it didn't used to be. You know, mm. this period from the, the Korean War, the Chinese Civil War and the Korean War, uh, up through until the breakthrough with Nixon in Beijing, that actually gives us a bit of a picture of our future.
0: (laughs) I don't want to say this, but maybe we're we're waiting for a new Nixon.
1: (laughs) You know, I I think that's not a crazy idea. It may be a little little too soon, but uh, if you think about it, it was ultimately untenable for the United States to try to just ignore China and for China Mm. to maintain such a a harsh policy toward the U.S. That was back in the in the '60s. Think about it now. You know when China is is the the number two or number one. You know these are basically the two biggest uh, economies in the world. So much rides on that relationship. Um, it's hard for me to believe, and and I I shudder to think of a future in which the two countries really do revert to the sort of relationship that they had back then in, in the period I'm writing about in my book. So again, it's it's an incentive not to let it get there, you know, and to, to figure out how to work out some kind of coexistence, uh, even, even under current conditions.
0: John, thank you so very much. Thank you. It was uh, a joy to talk with you about the book. John Delury, he's professor of Chinese studies at Yonsei University in Seoul in South Korea, and the book... The book in question is Agents of Subversion, The Fates of John T. Downey and the CIA's Covert War in China. That's published by Cornell University Press. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.